This morning we begin uh, an Easter series, given that we're only a few weeks away from Easter. And um, just before I begin, would you join me in prayer? Father God, we pray that at this time, indeed at all times, as we hear your word, that it might dwell in us and in our lives throughout the week, in whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in, in whatever season of life we might find ourselves in, that it might bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. Uh, Well, you may have noticed that uh, we've spent a lot of time in Luke's Gospel recently. Toward the end of last year, we had a little bit of a series on those parables that appear only in Luke's Gospel. You may or may not remember these things. Um, And then for Christmas time, we went all the way back to the beginning of Luke's Gospel, to the so-called infancy narratives in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And we actually tracked the story, we continued the story all the way up until Luke chapter 4, uh, where Jesus is prepared, prepares to begin his public ministry and he is tested in the wilderness. Do you remember that scene? And the very last words that we read in Luke chapter 4 were these, in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Those are the last words that we read in Luke's Gospel. Well, today we pick up the story at this opportune time. Satan has been sort of lurking in the shadows and he now makes his move. And so we read in that chapter that Mandy read for us, in verse 3, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And friends, it only gets more remarkable from there. In these 38 verses alone, there is disloyalty. Judas infamously betrays Jesus. Satan entered Judas, but verse 6, Judas consented. There is dispute. The disciples argue among themselves as to who was considered to be the greatest And there's denial. Jesus tells Peter in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times that you know me. And of course, there's the dullness of the disciples. Because the disciples ultimately miss the point. In verse 38 there, the disciples say, See, Lord, here are two swords. And you could read this a few ways. But Jesus says, That's enough. That is, not two will do, two's a good number, but you just don't get it. And in and among all this disloyalty, these disputes, this denial, this dullness, there is this episode that depicts what we have come to know as the Lord's Supper. But it's not as if that in the Lord's Supper everything becomes sort of less curious, This scene here has caused endless confusion and controversy. And uh, for the non-Christian, certainly, but also for the Christian, it strikes folk as a little odd. And it has from the very beginning. 
Even now, this scene is ridiculed. I'm not sure whether you uh, have watched any Monty Python skits, but Monty Python did a skit um, called The Last Supper, and it parodied uh, Michelangelo's uh, painting, The Last Supper, where J John Cleese, who's the, the Pope, um, he commissions this, this painting, but the final piece was just so ridiculous. It included everything from kangaroos to, to mariachi bands. It, it, it featured 28 disciples and, and three Christs. According to, this, according to the world, this scene is just plain weird. But according to us Christians, we hold it to be wonderful. So which is it? Is it weird or is it wonderful? Uh, the scene itself takes place uh, at Passover and Passover memorialised the events of Exodus chapter 12, 12 where uh, God told Israel to brush the blood of an unblemished lamb on, uh, lamb on their door frames as a sign for, for God to pass over their houses when he would judge the Egyptians in the final and decisive plague on the firstborn, that meant that Pharaoh would finally let God's people go. And every year, families, Israelite families, would celebrate by sacrificing what became known as the Passover lamb. And then Moses says this to the people in Exodus 12. He says, And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And so every Passover, they would have recalled or even, believe it or not, recited word for word the Exodus story. And so here in Luke in verse 8 of chapter 22, when Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare this Passover feast, we have to ask ourselves, were they prepared for, for this Passover? Because at this Passover, Jesus would use the, the bread and the wine to illustrate something crucial about his death that would happen the very next day. Namely, that it is for you. Jesus breaks the bread and says, this is my body given for you. And then he takes the cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. For you. The entire Christian faith may be understood in these two words. And that this takes place at Passover is no coincidence, right? Right? You see, you see, Passover sort of commemorated an extraordinary deliverance, but it pointed forward to a far greater deliverance. Because, of course, it would now be remembered by Christians as a time when God's firstborn son did die. When Jesus became our Passover lamb and we were delivered from bondage to Satan and sin. And so as Jesus broke the bread and, and took the cup, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It is for you, but remember me. 
And as far as we can tell, friends, the early church did exactly that. The early church did what Jesus said. And we continue to do uh, as Jesus said in remembrance of him. But remember, remember what? And remember how? Uh, this might be in living memory for some of you, it's not for me, but I found it interesting nonetheless. That in 1969, uh, Buzz Aldrin, uh, who was an elder actually at his local church in the States, confided in his pastor that he'd been struggling to find the right symbol for the first lunar landing. He later would comment, we wanted to express our feeling that what man was doing in this mission transcended electronics and computers and rockets. Anyway, they, they settled on the Lord's Supper. Interesting. And he later would say, for there are many of us in the NASA program who do trust what we are doing is part of God's eternal plan for man. Now, he had originally planned to share that event over the radio with all those who would listen in. Uh, but in the end was discouraged, actually, by both NASA uh, and, of course, um, some atheist activists. And so he was told, told to, quote, go in ahead and have communion, but keep your comments more general, unquote. And so Aldrin was forced to dilute the message. Instead he said this, I would like to request a few moments of silence. I would like to invite each person listening in, wherever and whomever he may be, to contemplate for a moment the events of the past few hours and give thanks in his own individual way. Now, is that the sort of remembrance that Jesus calls us to? Purely symbolic and extremely broad. No, Jesus was very specific. Continue to use the bread and the wine in this way in remembrance of me. It is for you, but remember me. That is the person and the work of Jesus, and more specifically, his death for us. And remember how? Not in the way that you might remember to pick up something from IGA on your way home for lunch. But perhaps in the way a working man travelling far from home for weeks on end remembers his wife in a way that reminds him of his identity, in a way that shapes his behaviour and keeps him faithful to her. And so the Lord's Supper is, a, is an invitation to remember Jesus in that sort of way. It dramatically reminds us of our identity in him and our reliance on him. See, tragically, though we think it impossible, we're in constant danger of forgetting. Do this in remembrance of me. And the early church, early church did exactly this. When Christians met, they would self-consciously use part of the meal that they shared in a formalised way to remember Jesus' last supper, his death, and their shared reliance upon him for the forgiveness of their sins. And we trace this tradition all the way back to Jesus himself here in the last supper. 
But from the very beginning, friends, it was used and abused. So, for example, when the church in Corinth met, Paul rebukes them. He rebukes the church in Corinth. See, when they gathered, the social hierarchy that defined the Corinthian culture came also to define their gatherings. And particularly when they gathered to celebrate what they called the Lord's Supper. The wealthy ate and drank too much, while the poor remained hungry. It was meant to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and not just acknowledge it, but to proclaim it. And you proclaim it by living out the implications of Christ's death for you and your brother and your sister. It is meant to be an expression of unity, but they used it actually to further divide. And so the whole passage in 1 Corinthians, if you've ever come across it before, and pastors often quote bits of it as we do the Lord's Supper, the whole passage in 1 Corinthians is essentially about the selfish disregard for others. And the hypocrisy that that reveals, right, that while engaging in the central Christian act of testimony to Christ and dependence on his death, you could simultaneously reject its meaning and its implications. They were going through the motions, but they were not remembering and God will judge them accordingly. And that's why, although in practice they were disregarding the poor, Paul uses such strong language. And so this happens, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul uses such strong language. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 29, Paul writes this to the Corinthians. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And if you stop and think about it just for a little bit, Jesus had a special hostility himself toward religious hypocrisy. That is, those who are outwardly religious and yet who are inwardly dishonouring God. And this is precisely what is happening in Corinth. And so Paul admonishes them and encourages us. Everyone, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And friends, he does not mean to examine yourselves to discern whether you are worthy. He means to examine yourselves to discern that you are unworthy. The Lord's Supper reminds us that there are no haves and have-nots among God's people. We were all have-nots, and now we're all haves. And so we should celebrate it with, with, with a sense of, uh, with, with a weightiness, with a sense of sincerity. Generations ago, um, in the Presbyterian Church, elders would, would come and visit communicant members uh, in the days leading up to every Lord's Supper service in order to discern the reality of their repentance and faith. And if they were satisfied, you would receive a token to bring 
to the next Lord's Supper service that you would use in order to share in the Lord's Supper. How do you feel about that? Here at TMPC, we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, in 2021 anyway, every, the first Sunday of every second month. So how would you feel if leading up to Easter Sunday, Bernie or Barry or Chris or Dave <laughs> knocked on your door? Pretty confronting perhaps. Whatever you make of it, it encouraged folk to examine themselves before celebrating the Lord's Supper so that they came to it with a sense of humility and dependence and ensured that they weren't going through the motions, that they were remembering in a way that Christ intended us to remember him. Friends, this passage is uh, just remarkable for so many different reasons. It has it all. Disloyalty, disputes, denial, dullness, and of course Jesus' announcement that his blood will be the sign and seal of the new covenant. We haven't had time to plumb the depths of that particular statement. But perhaps the most remarkable thing about this passage is what we discover about Jesus' heart. And I wonder whether it took your breath away as it did mine. We read in verse 15. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus was not a victim of Judas or Satan or fate. This was always a part of the plan. And despite the fact that Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, despite the fact that Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. And despite the fact that his disciples would end up arguing, in the midst of all this, among themselves as to who was considered to be the greatest, and despite the fact that his disciples would ultimately miss the point, he eagerly desired to eat this meal with them. Why? Because Jesus would use the Passover feast the bread and the wine, to teach them and every believer since something crucial about his death, namely that it is for you. And it is for you because you need it. And you need it because of the reality of your own sin and God's righteous judgment. that Jesus was eager for this meal or to set our hearts racing. This is God's heart for us. So is it weird or is it wonderful? When our children asks us, 
what does this mean to you? How are we going to answer? Jesus commanded us to remember his death until he comes again. And we eat of the bread in remembrance of his body given for us. We drink of the wine or the grape juice in remembrance of his blood which is poured out for us. He died in our place and he did so freely and he did so eagerly. And we remember him because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Lest we forget him. Let me pray. Father, may we remember your son as Jesus has instructed us to in a way that grounds us and orients us to the defining reality of our lives, that we are saved, that we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus, that we are your children, and because we are your children, we are also your heirs, co-heirs with Christ, that we are able to call you Father. We pray this Easter that we would remember Jesus in this way, and that you would be at work in us and through us for your glory. Amen.